and welcome to Nourish. My name is Kasha, and I'm an entrepreneur, a longtime meditator, and a student of Chinese medicine. My mission with this podcast is to share the tools and practices to help you integrate your whole self into every aspect of your world. As someone who is both a type A high achiever and a deeply spiritual, vulnerable, and empathetic being, I know firsthand how it feels to be living a double life, showing up one way at work, a different way alone, and struggling to reconcile the two. This disintegration of authenticity is one of the biggest causes of burnout, health flares, and anxiety. For me, understanding how the mind-body connection is crucial to health and success, cultivating a strong sense of inner self, and applying the healing philosophies of Chinese medicine and Zen Buddhism to my life has allowed me to lead from a completely heart-powered place, letting go of other people's judgments and finding peace in allowing my multi-dimensional being to shine. My hope is that this podcast may inspire you to do the same. I want to call out. It is a practice, it is a journey, but I believe it is the most important thing that we can do for our bodies, minds, and our ultimate potential. Enjoy. Hi, my friends. Welcome back to Nourish. I'm your host, Kasha, and today I have a very special guest for you, Tyler Beatty. Tyler is the CEO and co-founder of Cero Health a modern telehealth platform that enables at-home treatment of PTSD, leveraging EMDR therapy and smart neurotech devices. I'm so excited about Saro's vision and mission because PTSD is such an important topic. I think that there is a misconception that PTSD affects just, say, war veterans or those who have suffered from very acute and violent traumas. But according to the National Center for PTSD, about six of every men six of every 10 men, and about five of every 10 women experience at least one trauma in their lives. Symptoms include anxiety, depression, OCD, and so much more. EMDR is one very effective therapy for PTSD, but unfortunately, it isn't always accessible for everyone. Cero enables the at-home treatment of PTSD using bilateral stimulation devices designed to be used at home and controlled remotely. You can even use your Nintendo Joy-Con controllers as tappers for remote EMDR therapy sessions. Or if you're like me and you don't have one of those, you can use Sarah's proprietary stones. On today's episode, Tyler and I get into it all. What is PTSD? Why is trauma treatment so important? How does EMDR work? Tyler's own deeply personal story with PTSD, which many of you might be able to relate to, myself included, and how this story and his experience influenced his career, his relationships, and ultimately his purpose. Tyler gets into authentic leadership and the importance of vulnerability in the workplace and so much more. All right. Now, without further ado, let's jump into it. And I'm so excited to welcome Tyler to the Nourish Podcast. Tyler, welcome to the Nourish Podcast. 
Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Mm, Me too. This has been a long time coming. This is a topic that I've wanted to talk about for a while, and I'm so pumped to have you as a guest. But before we dive into all of the questions, I'm going to start with a question I ask every single guest, which is, what are three words that you would use to describe yourself? (laughs) Oh, that's a good one. Passionate, creative, and empathetic. I think I'd go with this. I love that. And I will say that as somebody who spent a whirlwind of a couple of days with you at the health (laughs) conference this past year, all of those words are pretty accurate. So that is definitely how I received you on the other side, which I think is great. So Tyler, you're the CEO and co-founder of Cero Health, which is a modern telehealth platform that enables at-home treatment of PTSD, leveraging EMDR therapy and smart neurotech devices. So before we dive into all of the questions there, I want to (laughs) kind of zoom out here and recognize that a lot of people are probably not that familiar with PTSD, but it is actually a very common experience and, and common diagnosis. It's actually more common than we think. I was doing some research for the podcast. And according to the National Center for PTSD, about six of every 10 men and five of every 10 women experience at least one trauma in their lives. And so some people may recover within a few months, but for others, it can take years or even longer. So I want to actually start there. What exactly is PTSD? And Can you define that for us and the difference between PTSD and just trauma in general? Sure. Yeah, it's a super important distinction and something that I think really needs a lot more research and more education in in the general space. You know, I think starting with trauma is kind of a good focus point. So in a traumatic experience or series of experiences can lead to post-traumatic stress disorder which is actually just a diagnosis. There's 630,000 different combinations of symptoms that make up PTSD as a diagnosis. And this is according to this diagnostic manual called the DSM-5 that is put together by the APA. And, you know, it's because of how many different types of symptoms there are. Sometimes it can be misdiagnosed or goes undiagnosed uh, quite frequently as anxiety disorders or, you know, the individual symptoms are addressed like panic attacks or depression or anger or substance use, OCD, eating disorders. These can all be within um, a like a trauma-related diagnosis like post-traumatic stress disorder. And then where it gets even more complicated is that there's complex PTSD. So PTSD is generally seen as like a range of symptoms that occur after a traumatic experience. So I want to step back and talk a little bit more about trauma and jump in if, you know, you wanted me to stop me anywhere, you know, trying to find what the simplest way to to describe trauma is. And one of the clinicians that we talked with Beyond Healing Center, I have to give them credit for this. They said their definition of trauma is any experience or set of experiences that overwhelm our ability to cope. Put another way, it's any experience that is too much for too long or too much too quickly or too little for too long, which is sometimes surprising for people to learn. 
And those experiences can cause a very natural response, a fear response that is there to try to protect us. But when that fear response gets stuck and we're not able to process the events that have happened in an adaptive manner, that's when we start seeing these psychological symptoms of anxiety and depression and panic attacks and substance use occurs. And these can be pretty disconcerting, but also just getting in the way of day-to-day life uh, in severe ways. And to the extent to which they take away from your ability to to live live the life you want, that's when um, you know generally the duration and the intensity of the symptoms, generally then it relates to a diagnosis. That's the two metrics that are generally used. But as we probably go in in this conversation, we'll learn that diagnoses are kind of expanding and growing within a specific symptom range, but also like how we detect and how we diagnose is changing too. So a lot is shifting in the space. Ah, So that, first of all, thank you for jumping right into that, because one of the reasons why I was so pumped to talk to you, I mean, besides the fact that I think you're an amazing human and what you're working on is great and Sarah is incredible and we're going to get all into that, is because I really wanted to get a little bit of insight into this whole diagnostic and treatment process behind PTSD. Because as you were kind of describing what some of the symptoms are, a lot of these symptoms are so common in our day-to-day life, right? Like anxiety, OCD tendencies, let's say, right? Like panic attacks, substance abuse. So at what point is the line typically, I mean, I'm sure it's so different for every single person, but are there some trends that you're recognizing around the fact that perhaps maybe more of us are suffering from PTSD than are diagnosed? Like what typically goes into the flow of diagnosis? And is there a line there that perhaps isn't as clearly defined as it should be? And are more of us maybe suffering from some form of PTSD, even if it's very minor, but it's affecting us deeply? You know, personally, I think it's helpful to maybe separate the diagnosis in a little bit and look at more of what are the symptoms that are occurring and why have they, when did they start and what caused the symptoms to arise. And then looking at how do we heal the parts of us that were injured in the past that are creating today's, today's pain. So, you know, in, in most circumstances, it's, it's important to just try to find the origin of what occurred and how to manage that, those set core beliefs and where those come from. And then change those negative core beliefs that we've developed and find more positive ones to to replace them. And there's a variety of different techniques and treatments. And I think that's where the diagnosis can be helpful as to understand where to uh, go for treatment. But first and foremost, talking to a psychiatrist or a licensed psychologist, if you are experiencing any symptom that's getting in the way of your joy and happiness and sense of safety in this world is generally the first step. And then they can help walk you through and understand your history. And I think there's a a problem with self-diagnosis, especially with social media and people talking about these symptoms and potentially exacerbating things that are generally normal. But then at the same time, we are normalizing things that are definitely not. And so 
yeah, it's it's a complex problem to to kind of think about and solve. And I think one of the ways we can make this more objective, the problem is that it's a little subjective. A lot of these things are are based on how you feel, but if if you yourself don't understand that, it takes another person who's trained to understand and see how you're reacting to certain stimuli and such, and to then be able to create a treatment plan for you. But as diagnostic tools get better, as brain scans become cheaper, more effective, or, or more accessible, then we can start to see the physiological changes that occur in the brain after traumatic incidences and then we can start to potentially look at at mental health challenges more like the physical the physiological changes that they are and start be having more ob- objective treatments and objective diagnoses but i think we're still on the precipice of that so in terms of i guess treatments emdr is one method of treatment is that correct yes yeah, there's quite a few different modalities that are used to treat PTSD with varying levels of success, adherence. So how often do people stay in sessions? And then what are the outcomes results too? And can you tell us a bit, what exactly does EMDR stand for and what is unique about the treatment? Yes, most people think it's EDMR. It has nothing to do with pop music or <laughs> dance music. It's uh, Damn, actually, that's what yeah. I thought I was going in for. Yeah, it's Surprise. not electric, <laughs> electronic dance movement rejuvenation. No, um, it's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. So kind of breaking that down, eye movements, we'll skip over that for a second. And then it's desensitization. And what you're doing is trying to remove the emotional charge or the weight that a past memory has on your current state. And the reprocessing piece is how do you then shift that memory and you process that memory uh, if you haven't processed it at all or reprocess it if you had a negative belief about yourself develop because of that incident in the past that's no longer true today, right? So things that have happened in the past that are no longer true today. If they're still true today, then that fear is actually warranted. If you're still within have a threat that's present it's adaptive for you to have the anxiety or the fear because that is trying to tell you that whatever you are doing or where you are currently is unsafe for you and so determining how to how to remove yourself from that situation or whatnot is is kind of a, a whole nother you know discussion as well and so what component does kind of the do the eyes have in this whole process yeah, so this therapy was developed or or discovered officially in 1987 um, by Francine Shapiro. And what she realized when she was out on walks with her patients, they were able to process the terminal diagnosis that they had gotten. These were cancer patients she was working with or people who are experiencing cancer, pardon me. And so she figured, what are we doing when we're out on walks and how do I bring that back into the therapy session inside where it's more obtainable and accessible to more people? Going for walks is great if you can do it with your therapist, but not exactly always accessible uh, weather or, or you know privacy and whatnot. And one of the things she noticed that patients were doing was scanning left to right with their eyes while also moving their legs left and right in a bilateral state. So bi meaning two, and then lateral meaning left to right, essentially. So 
that's where bilateral stimulation kind of was born. And the therapy itself, a lot of practitioners call it just desensitization or and reprocessing therapy or just reprocessing therapy as other forms of bilateral stimulation besides just these lateralized eye movements have become popular as ways of helping people desensitize uh, to the emotion and then reprocess those in a more adaptive, healthy way. And that brings us right to Sarah Health, right? <laughs> so perfect segue there. I mean, before we dive into kind of some of those other methods of desensitize, okay, I say it, say it out <laughs> loud because I don't think I could say it. Desensitize, okay, try again. Can you tell yeah. me? It's taken me two years <laughs> and sometimes I still mess it up. Desensitization. Desensitize, yeah. okay, I can't do it. What he said. All right. There we go. Thank you, Tyler. That's what we're just going to like fill in the blank there. As we kind of look at some of the other methods that are kind of, I guess, complementary to or adjacent to like the traditional EMDR therapy, Saro is providing a therapeutic version that enables at-home treatment. But before we dive into that, and you can kind of share with us that technology and how it works, I'd love for you to share with us what kind of triggered this passion within you. Because I know that when you and I spoke one-on-one, that you have a beautiful story, which I think a lot of people might be able to relate to. And I was actually going to ask for a specific example of how this kind of reprogramming kind of experience of PTSD could look like. Because I do think that there is a misconception in a way that PTSD mm-hmm. only applies to people who, let's say, were are veterans or suffered that specific kind of, let's say, like violent acute trauma in that way. Mm-hmm. So could you share with us a bit of your story and what inspired this vision? Yeah, it's it's it's, it's really fascinating because I had no idea what PTSD, I, I had heard the words, but, you know, I definitely thought it was something that people who went to war or experienced, you know, like you said, extreme violence or um, natural disasters or extreme me- like medical harm developed, but it's far wider of a diagnosis and then far wider of a, it's applicable. Essentially anybody can have an experience, a traumatic experience, and anybody can then develop Psycho- a psychological injury, a lasting psychological injury because of it, which then can affect and lead to symptoms of anxiety, depression, substance use disorder, eating disorders, panic attacks, a far other ones, flashbacks are very common, sleepless nights, nightmares, night terrors, quite a lot of symptoms. And what's interesting is that it's not only, it can not only make people hypervigilant, so overly active, but also um, hypovigilant. So lower on the activity scale, similar to like what depression might be. So that's where it's difficult to diagnose sometimes. And so I actually, yeah, I had no idea what it was. I knew I knew that I had anxiety. I was diagnosed with anxiety when I was right in college. And then I had depression and struggle with suicidality. My, um, I think it was like two or three years after school, it started to become much more prevalent. But I think, you know, through my sessions, I discovered it was probably longer than that. And I actually found out about EMDR therapy kind of by a fluke. Um, One of my friends that I had made, we were talking about how we 
store our memories and particularly because we were trying to be nerds and create a note-taking system to make sure we can remember things because we both have ADHD as well. (laughs) And so executive function and memory are not our strong suits already. And uh, he was telling me how we store memories and what the important, like how we store negative memories more readily because those can help protect us in the future. If we see a snake and, or we eat some berries and they don't make us feel good, it's probably a good idea not to eat those berries again. But if something good happens, like berries taste good, it's not as strong of a connection because it's not necessarily preventing something catastrophic like death. And that's most of what we aim for (laughs) is survival. The survival will is, is stronger than anything else. So yeah, we're talking about how we store notes and how we have these memories. And then he just started talking about how he started having breakthroughs with his clients. Uh, He sees his clients are people who experience homelessness. And um, there's quite a lot of traumatic events that occur before and after and during homelessness. And talk traditional talk therapy and other forms of mod- other modalities of treatment and medications weren't as effective as EMDR was for his clients and at first i thought it was kind of silly that you could move your eyes left and right and that could somehow help you overcome the fear of abuse as a child or car accident or losing somebody you love it seemed kind of preposterous and I thought he was joking, honestly. And uh, it wasn't until like we had spent some time, more time talking about it. He had showed me the devices. I had watched some videos from people who had survived um, trauma, like intense traumas and uh, recovered with EMDR that I decided like, hey, maybe I should um, look into this. Uh, knowing that like my childhood was filled with bullying and a, f- a feeling of, of, lack of safety. And a lot of the symptoms matched up for PTSD, but they were also very similar to ADHD. And then I got went down the whole rabbit hole of how ADHD and PTSD might be related and how symptoms can be worsened by trauma and repeated exposure to events that kind of confirm your belief. And for me, it was, I'm not productive. I'm not lovable. I'm not as focused as everybody else. I can't stay focused and therefore I might be broken. And that just repeated itself. And it became extra apparent when I was running a design agency and I had, you know, 12 projects going on at a, at a once. And we were working with, you know, a series A high growth startups in the tech space. And so every little detail mattered a ton. That's when it became like apparent that I needed care and just, yeah time worked out. And then I had my first sessions and it was quite the experience. Tyler, I really want to say thank you for sharing that for two reasons. One, actually three, three. Okay. Overachieving with reasons here. Like, first of all, I think the story that you shared is one that a lot of people can relate to. And I think it just allows people to perhaps those who are listening to this right now reimagine how maybe some of their current reactions could be connected to something that happened that really influenced them in this way and that it's not necessarily that hey you know your fear-based reaction to x means that you're unqualified or you know just not good at this or or whatever or that there's something so wrong with you i think hearing your story is really going to hit a nerve with a lot of people myself included And then the fact that you're a guy sharing this, I think is huge because 
as a girl, I can speak to the fact, as somebody who identifies as a female, I can speak to the fact that I'll, you know, Mean Girls came out as a movie. Like that was actually filmed at my school, not, not, you know, like based on my school. Yeah. It was actually like that, my high school. But not a lot, not enough people talk about the influence that relationships that we can have as children can impact boys as well. And I think it's just so huge that you call that out. And then now that you're sitting here as the co-founder of a company that's working to make a difference in that space, it's just such a full circle moment. So thank you. And that was two, (laughs) but two reasons to thank you for that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think after going through everything, it only makes sense to try to help others it feels wrong to not make it my life's mission to help people free themselves from this constant fear. I, th- I thought it was so normal and it was anything but, and I, I couldn't imagine like, I mean, it, it was affecting every part of my life in major ways, my relationships, my relationship to myself, you know, that was like the biggest thing. And, but having people who cared about me and, uh, helped me through that time was was everything. So just as important as the tools are, like making sure you're surrounding yourself with a community of people. You know, it takes a whole village to overcome sometimes. And I'm um, just as just asking for help. You know, you never know who else has gone through it too, and can be there and and talk to you about it. And through the process, I think I've learned that by talking about it, I've I've deepened my relationships so much more than I could ever believe, especially with my male friends, because they've never had anybody ask them how they're truly doing and then just listen to them and share the experience, you know, of, of life. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it comes with those bumps and how do you take, how do you manage those and how do you find the tools and build the community around you to, to get through that? Absolutely. It's a power of vulnerability right there. And it seems to me, based on what you're saying, you can tell me if this is true or not, but going through it not only enables you to or have gone through it and then now kind of being on this other side or we're always going through our stuff. So maybe it's just it's just a journey, but it allows you to create something for others, but also relate to people in a deeply healing way, which a lot of folks, unfortunately, don't always receive from the people around them, that deep empathy that comes from really understanding what it's like to be hurt or traumatized in a particular way. Yeah. And sometimes just people don't have the space. They've still going, they're still going through their journey and they might be a few steps behind, you know? And so it's kind of your, our job to like, look at where we are and figure out when our cup's full enough to help others fill theirs. And but until then, you know, realizing that a lot of people are working with a lot less or at different spots, then, you know, you, you do develop a different perspective. And it was kind of interesting because when I was feeling that way, I don't think I had nearly as much empathy. It was more like jealousy. And that just made things worse because then I felt shameful that I was jealous of what others had that I felt I deserved and how to process that that whole that whole bundle of emotions too. I think what was most interesting is that so much else comes up during a session. You know, I, I didn't even know what I was going in for. I just knew that I had had, you know, overwhelming anxiety and depression. You know, maybe there was some trauma related to it, but I, I had no idea what was gonna come. And I just went in with an open mind and listen to my friend when he said like you're paying like the this is what you're paying your therapist to do <laughs> you come to your session that's your job if you show up you've succeeded 
that's 99% of it, you know, and then just sticking through it and going through everything. And I would say, you know, I'm definitely still on my journey and still in sessions regularly approaching and, and discovering new parts of me that have been locked away and that I haven't kind of tried to explore because they've been too painful. And so, yeah, still learning, still growing. I think the the second I stop doing that will be uh, kind of a sad day. Maybe it'll never happen. So we don't have to go there. Yeah. Okay. So question for you, you were going through a lot of different symptoms you mentioned while you were running your creative agency. Mm-hmm. Can you share for folks, like what were some of the symptoms? Was it anxiety, depression? Like what were some of the things that were coming up just so people can relate if this is resonating? Overwhelm is a good kind of overarching feeling but then complete shutdown at other times. So numb to things like emotions would be stunted or on overdrive. And it was very difficult to to manage those. And I felt like I was always reacting to things rather than having the space to respond. And so I was being pulled in different directions rather than leading myself. And I think that was when I first started noticing when projects were dropping you know, deadlines were passing, people would, would be upset with something and it, it would just affect me for days. You know, I, sometimes I wouldn't be able to get out of bed and it would really like sting, you know, like that disapproval. And, you know, it all stems back to my childhood and expectations and not meeting expectations, even for myself. That's when it became the worst when I knew I had the ability to do it, but the capability was there, but the ability was not, I guess, I guess you could say. So I can relate to this so deeply. (laughs) I have so many friends. So, you know, you're running a company now. You're the co-founder here. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, do you still run into these emotions? All the time. So is it possible to be... So, okay. So they're not going to go away. Tell me what has changed then? What has changed? I just have space from them and not all the time, right? Like sometimes things compound and then they become overwhelming, you know, and it's just like they overwhelm my ability to cope, but I've developed new coping mechanisms. I've understood like, what are my dirty motivators? And, you know, I've been able to explore how to identify what I'm feeling a little bit more without judging it. And that's also been through like meditation, through breath work through journaling, through yoga, exercise, through cleaning, like just the act of like putting things away and feeling organized. These are all different mindfulness activities that I've kind of learned along the way that I can use as a menu of uh, options when I'm feeling a certain way that is not conducive to what I want to do. And most of the time when I'm feeling anxious or overwhelmed or kind of like all over the place. My mind is full and I can't stop thinking. The easiest thing is to just focus on my breath or to go for a walk or to switch my environment or my, my physical state. And that's something that I learned through EMDR. Uh, You know, it's like, how do you get back into your body and out of your mind in a good way? That's so powerful because I I think that a lot of the emotions that you're talking about, these are such human emotions that we're experiencing today. And to feel like you have a coping mechanism, or it sounds like many, and how EMDR was able to help you recognize 
the loop that it sounds like, the journey mm-hmm. that you are going on with those emotions to then create that space and bring in some of these other tools that just feels so freeing, so freeing. So you talked about the term dirty motivators. <laughs> what What is that? What is a dirty motivator? Call it out yeah. for us here. Yeah. I don't know. I don't have a good good definition here. I For you, I guess it could be personal, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. For me, it's just like those... I don't, these are like more technical terms, but like maladaptive. So just not helpful. The the like activities that are not helpful, but though they like seem like they are. And for me with ADHD, you know, dopamine is something that I seek. And there's a lot of dopamine fulfilling like activities that just end up draining you of dopamine because you're not actually going forward towards the goals that you have. And these are like social media, like any kind of thing where you're just consuming with no production. So any kind of social media, essentially video games, food, pornography, just consuming TV, anything that's like super passive yet like activating shopping is a big one for me. Retail therapy, you know, even just waiting, you know, just once you purchase, then you have to wait, for, then you get to wait for it. And then you get the notifications and it can be stimulating, but not in like a replenishing way, but actually in a net negative way. So you actually over overextend yourself and you then end up depleted. This is how like most addictions work as well with a substance. It's just you're using, you know, digital or other forms of manipulating your dopamine. It's all consumption. It's all consumption in some way, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and like learning is good, right? So mm-hmm. don't want to get those mixed up. Like it's still good to consume things, but as long as you then have an outlet to express what you've learned, mm. that's where you then start to feel more of the the internal motivation uh, once you see those results. But I mean, it depends on how you've grown up and what you were taught when you were younger. And and But the thing that's helped most is just figuring out what is my DOPA menu and what are the like entrees that are healthy for me to do, like you know, playing guitar or skateboarding or designing, you know, and then my kind of like desserts, which I could still have once in a while, or like video games and like researching tech videos and watches, and I'm, uh, I have quite a lot of hobbies. And then you have uh, snacks, which are just shorter, easier things you can you can do without anything else, and. So breathwork is a great one for me. It's always accessible. I can use it whenever. So when I was quitting nicotine for like the 18th time, probably, who knows how many times, I needed something to replace it that was always with me. Otherwise, I would find a way to get back to nicotine as my like anti-anxiety self-medication thing, but realize that that was the thing causing the anxiety in the first place. So I just tried to internalize that as much as I could and focused on my breath and if anyone's listening, all you have to do, it's not very hard, just longer exhales than you do inhales. That's it. There's a million different types of breath work. I, I encourage you to explore all of them, but easiest one to remember and to just use all the time is longer exhales than you do inhales. You end up reducing your level of CO2 in your system, and that helps to calm your autonomic nervous system. And, uh, and then there's also the sympathetic sigh, which is the next level up. Uh, if you want to research that. 
I will hyperlink those below. Thank you for that. That's such a good tidbit for folks. And I love that framework of really bucketing the things that give you that spike of dopamine. And I also love calling out just being observant of your ratio of like consumption to creation because something like learning, you're actually processing the material. Maybe you choose to do something with it. There's, there is an element of like productivity, but like the online shopping for purposes of numbing or porn or alcohol or whatever it is, when it gets to the point where it's, I guess you're trying to resist certain emotions, that's where it can start to be a little bit iffy, which I love that you call that out. So yeah. I want to ask you a um, kind of out there question because you are, you lead a team, you're, you lead a company. <laughs> okay. Let's just be real here. And I'm curious to dig into your perspective of authenticity as a leader, because there's this, and maybe it's a false narrative, but there's a very common narrative. You know, you see the Elon Musks of the world, like the Steve Jobses of the world, like the people that we talk about in terms of, you know, creating these businesses and whatnot. And there's, I think, a very clear I don't know if I want to call it stigma, but there's like a perception of this is how a CEO acts is. And then here you're on here being vulnerable, which I think is absolutely amazing. And I'm curious if, you know, any of these experiences have shifted the way that you lead and has it changed how you lead? And have you noticed any sort of ripple down effects from that? Because I think it's really important to highlight the leaders like the CEOs of Patagonia, right? Or like the Michael Singers of the world that are choosing to lead from a very different, authentic, passion-driven place, which I can see is where you're coming from. So I'm curious if that has, if there's been a shift there or what are some of the observations you've made? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think through my own personal development, I've realized that I can be a better listener and 90% of the job of a leader is just to listen to what's blocking the people that work with you and trusting them to do the job that they were hired to do and and getting out of their way is pretty much uh, pretty much the job and just understanding that all of their actions aren't necessarily a reflection of who they are always it's just who they were then and it could be because of external circumstances that you have no idea about and so having like just like super candid, open, open dialogue about what's going on in my life and, you know, how I work and what, what works for me and what doesn't. Um, I mean, we started very early on talking about this. I mean, as a mental health company, you kind of talk about why you got into this space is the first question. And then everyone generally shares their stories about what, you know, what happened that shifted their, you know, perspective on care, self-care. And, but in a, in other industries where it's not necessarily as prevalent, I think the first thing is just to be confident in where you are at and figuring out what you need to succeed and then embracing, like you first have to kind of be okay telling yourself about talking to yourself about it. And again, this can come with talking with a therapist first and understanding what the emotions, thoughts, and feelings are and being able to label them and understand where they're coming from. And then you can start seeing that in, in others and how it manifests for them and just asking them if anything else is going on in their life is hard. It's a difficult one. I don't know if, uh, 
I've done too much research or like studying into how this affects organizations because there's also a train of thought, you know, that we're very heavily geared towards not bringing personal life into the workplace. But at the same time, like organizations are just organic groupings of humans doing something together. So mm. like mm-hmm. you got to kind of take the people's personality and, and experiences into account, you know, if you want the whole organism to work well, just like you would, you know, focus on each part of your body. If you want your whole body to work well. Yeah. I think, I think there's a lot to kind of learn here. Sociology is uh, a whole nother field. <laughs> I love that. I, I just I wanted your personal perspective because I, I do think it's it's authenticity is a powerful tool. And I read this quote once, which is like, what you can't own owns you. And you know, that sounds a little bit like dominating or, you know, all powerful, but it's just about being really honest with yourself. And if you can be honest with yourself, you can show up honestly and like accepting of who you are out in front of other people, which you know, in my experience brings on a level of confidence that is, you really can't, there are a few things that can rock that, like when you really do get yourself and then there's a level of acceptance that you can show up that way with others, which I think is just so Mm. powerful because there is a core human need for connection. So I think authentically showing up who you are, you don't have to disclose, you know, your bowel movement that morning, right? (laughs) But like authentically showing up who you are in the workplace enables other people to, I think, trust you more. And it has a powerful ripple effect. I mean, I don't know, I haven't interviewed people at Cerro other than you, but (laughs) I'm sure you're having an impact. That's what I feel, at least. There's that. (laughs) Yeah. I learn a ton from my team too. You know, uh, they, they bring a lot to the table on this very topic of how to lead. I mean, they lead, they've led teams in their past. You know, my, my co-founder Kieran has taught me a ton about management as someone with ADHD. That's like definitely one of my weakest spots is time management and organization. And we play off each other's strengths and weaknesses very well. And then we also are able to like learn from each other. And I think that's, you know, a wonderful experience to be able to have and super lucky and, and thankful to have that, that type of a partner. And I think if you're working with people day in and day out, you kind of, yeah, you do have to build that trust. And part of that trust is, is being vulnerable and sharing things that, and then as a list, as the other person, like you have to also understand like how to not, how to make sure that the other person is not feeling shame for disclosing that. So regardless of how you may feel about what they disclosed, the appropriate thing is almost always not to react in a in a negative way, um, because that's just not helpful at all. <laughs> 100%. Nobody's taught to do this. So nobody's taught how to how to feel or how to breathe or how to think or how to sit still or they're told to do it, but they're not taught to do it. And I think there's a very big difference. And I think that's like a lot of the a lot of the disconnect and a lot of the anxiety that, that a lot of these symptoms occur just because we're not in touch with our feelings and our emotions and our identity. And that's something that, you know, I personally kind of am, am on a journey for is like discovering meaning and purpose and what drives me underneath the surface level and what other people, what I think other people perceive me as. And, but it's a long journey and, you know, trauma gets in the way of that. And before you can do anything else, you need to address the wound that 
is then causing the rest of the the pain. I kind of want to go into the the uh, kind of some of the workings of EMDR too. Do it, do it, know. please. Okay, so like when what happens when you experience a traumatic event is that the part of your brain, your alarm system, it's called the amygdala. There's other parts of the brain that are active too, but we see a, a very big spike in the activity of the amygdala when somebody is in a fear state. So, and a good example of this is back in the day is when we'd see a saber-toothed tiger in the brush, our amygdala would turn on, which means that our survival mode is essentially turned on our fight, flight, or freeze response. And so we need to determine what is the appropriate response to this experience or this external stimuli that is going to keep me alive, first and foremost. And so if there's a saber-toothed tiger, the first thing to do if he sees you is probably to run, so to, to have the flight. But if he doesn't see you, maybe freeze is like the more uh, appropriate response. And so let's say the, the saber-toothed tiger does see you, the amygdala gets activated, you start running away. You don't decide, you're not trying to, you're not cognitively trying to process where you're just trying to get as far away from it as possible or, or climbing the nearest tree possible to try to survive. So what happens is the thinking part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, actually uh, has less activation and resources put towards it. So we're not actually able to cognitively process very well, and that's on purpose. And so what happens though is later on, if you still are thinking about being chased by the saber-toothed tiger and that state, that memory gets stuck, then you're not, then you're actually, your amygdala increases in size and your prefrontal cortex is inactive. It's not completely inactive, but um, doesn't have as much activation. And so you're not able to cognitively think through or, or problem solve or regulate emotions in an appropriate manner. And so you have a, a really, a very real physiological change in the brain that needs to be addressed before you can even start to regulate your emotions. We were talking about like coping is a tool, but if you can't even, if you can't even process or logically think about solving the problem, then a cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, it becomes very difficult to uh, work through, to think your way out of it because your thinking brain is essentially hijacked by that fight or flight system. And so if you, yeah, that's, that's how, and then EMDR is, is, is essentially decreasing that activation of the fight or flight response and engaging that prefrontal cortex. And the working memory theory is the leading uh, hypothesis for how this works. But put simply, it's essentially a, a distraction. So it's a physical stimulus that's pulling you from your mind to your body and activating a portion of your working memory or the the conscious mind, like the the short-term memory that we kind of think about while you're also trying to pull a memory from your long-term storage into the same spot. And so they're competing for the same resources. And for some reason, this desensitizes the emotional response to the memory or to the thought of the memory. Then by experiencing that feeling or that memory without as much activation, over time, you start to see that it's actually just another memory like anything else. And so you still, you're not erasing the memory. It's just no longer has the same control over you that it did. So it's just like what breakfast, it was like breakfast this morning is the same kind of a memory as 
you know, getting bullied when I was 11 uh, and having my skate stolen, you know, it has the same amount of activation for me after going through, you know, the desensitization piece and then reprocessing that emotion, that memory in a more adaptive way. And that's what you work with a therapist to do is understand the situation in a new way. And by removing that fear, you essentially get to pull yourself out of your body in your memory and see the incident or the traumatic event or experience for what it was more objectively. And so it's like, well, th- like this wasn't my fault that this person was bullying me. Like, who knows what was happening in their world and what, you know, what led them to do that. But I was not encouraging that or it was not my fault. And so removing that blame, like lifted a, a veil of, of shame and guilt around that. And, and then layer by layer, you know, you start peeling away at it and you get to the core of it and it's like, then it no longer has that control over you. Wow. That allows for so much freedom to be able to take a memory that is triggering and probably gets re-triggered with like similar scenarios where you anticipate perhaps having the same sort of experience that you had as a child to then remove that charge. It sounds like you're kind of reprogramming that emotional reaction with the therapy. Is that what is happening, so to speak, in the brain when you're going through that treatment? Yeah, you're essentially putting a fresh coat of snow down. And now you don't have these deep-rooted paths that you automatically take when something happens. Neuroplasticity. Yeah, you're essentially (laughs) stimulating like new neural pathways and, and, and rather than the ones that you've already taken. And, you know, we're, we're creatures of habit. We like things to be very similar to what they have been in the past because it doesn't take up any more energy. And energy is the currency of that we kind of play with day to day. Literally, literally energy is everything. It's how we perceive light is energy. So how we see is energy, how we hear things. Those are different frequencies of energy through the air, how we feel things, tac- tactile feelings. Um, that's transfer of energy too, like friction is a transfer of energy. Yeah, everything and then energy is neither created nor destroyed. It's, it's just directed in a certain direction. So same thing with anxiety. It's like it's a something telling, it's an energy telling you to do something different than you've already done before. Yeah. And are you gonna listen to it? Are you going to understand what it's trying to tell you? Or are you gonna try to ignore it? But it's still gonna be there. Even if you ignore it, it'll still be there. And that's kind of the trap that we get ourselves into. Mm, oh, and that's a whole nother podcast episode right there into digging into the effects of emotions that aren't fully processed that you bottle down. May it be like anxiety, any sort of depression, all the different emotions, but we can't go there. So I'm going to pause us for that. But I think this is so unbelievably exciting. I do want to ask one question. I know we're almost running out of time, but I have to throw that in there. What about yeah. people who cannot remember their the root memory. Like, let's just say you're somebody who is experiencing like debilitating anxiety or a feeling of imposter syndrome when they're in high stakes situations, but they don't necessarily remember the root of when this came up. Mm-hmm. Is Can EMDR be effective for them as well? Since, you know, you were describing that there's like this re-remembrance in the treatment and then that is desensitized, et cetera. What happens for people who can't remember the memory? Yeah. Yeah. In 
memories are still kind of unknown to us and how we store them. And, and we know a lot, but we don't exactly know everything. And so one of the things we want to be careful about or therapists want to be careful about um, when working with a client is like implanting false memories. But what how a therapist will work on this with you is actually to start with the most present moment, what you're feeling now, when was the last time you were feeling this way that you're talking about this anxious feeling, then we'll try to describe what that anxious feeling feels like and where is that stored in the body. And then it's like, when was the last time you noticed it? And then what was happening around you? And then you do the bilateral stimulation alongside that. And you're trying to f- hold that feeling, the bodily feeling and the, whatever thoughts, feelings, and emotions or memories, any of the sensations that are attached to that in your mind while this bilateral stimulation is occurring. And it's kind of the freakiest thing. Things start coming up and you realize, you know, actually like, what was interesting is that when I when I was feeling anxiety, is like when I walk inside a room and it's like, well, why did I like what was that, what was that feeling? And then the therapist says, well, let's go with that, and you follow that and you hold on to that idea and that concept, and then you have more bilateral stimulation, and then the therapist will check in, and it's then the new idea pops in, and it's like, well, actually, it's like because now I have the opportunity to be productive. Like before I was outside, you know, I didn't have the weight that I needed, like the feeling that I needed to be doing something productive and that I wasn't, wasn't valuable or worthy of love. Now that I'm inside, I feel like I could be productive, but I'm not right now because I'm doing something that's leisurely or something else. And so that's when the anxiety starts. And then we pass that backwards, go further back and further back and the therapist will guide you. So yeah, you don't need to come with a target. That's what it's called, a target, that target memory that's causing this anxiety. All you have to come is with a willingness to explore and to go through that, go through, literally through the experience and trust your therapist and, and be guided by them. And that's why it's so important to find someone that you work, that who you work with, that you relate to and can be open with and work with a with an with a expert someone who's certified and trained in EMDR therapy and ha- is a psychiatrist or a psychologist um, friends are great but when you're working through trauma opening up that wound without a experienced surgeon is a risky proposition oh yeah I could chat with you forever, but we are up on time. In fact, I'm pulling you about five minutes over at this point, my friend. I apologize. But what's really exciting here is that, you know, you're mentioning showing up to your therapist. You don't have to have that kind of core memory in mind. But now you can, with the help of Sero, you can show up for EMDR therapy from the comfort of your own home, which is incredible because it was something that it sounds like had to be done in person before this. And so I know that a lot of listeners listening to this, myself included, but I already know all the answers to my next question, are going to want to know how to find you and how to learn more about Cero. So could you share with us where can they go? How can they find a treatment that Mm -hmm. uses Cero so that way they have access to this if they cannot find an EMDR specialist near them? And I'm going to hyperlink everything below. Don't worry. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the first thing, if you want to learn more about EMDR therapy, the number one resource is EMDRIA, E-M-D-R-I-A dot org. 
That's the main organization, the nonprofit that manages uh, this modality of treatment. They also have a, a vast list of clinicians who are trained that you can search through. Um, there's just a find my therapist button there. And if you want to find a therapist who works remotely, a lot of them do. A lot of them don't necessarily use the same devices that they would use in person remotely. So if you do want to use that with them, you can actually have any of your any therapist use our programs for free uh, with Nintendo Joy-Cons. It'll make more sense if <laughs> later on, once you check out our website and or you are in sessions, but it essentially allows you to do bilateral stimulation from home without purchasing any devices. Or if you want to, and that's sero.health. Uh, that's the website to go to, to sign up for that beta. And you can have the therapist sign up as well, and they can control your Nintendo Joy-Con game controllers remotely for free. And if you want to purchase Sero Stones, which are purpose-built devices for EMDR therapy, then you can go to hellocero.com. And I'm sure as we as we expand, we'll have more resources for learning about EMDR therapy, stories of people who've been through it, and how to find a clinician who's well-trained and uses our devices, but that is all to come. I love it. I also love the little easy Nintendo option for those of you out there. That's not me, but that (laughs) and the stones. So two options. That's fantastic. Tyler, thank you so, so much for joining me today. It was such a pleasure. And thank you everybody for tuning in and we shall see you next time. Bye. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Nourish. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a review. Five-star reviews help the podcast grow, and I'm so grateful for that. I publish new episodes twice a month, so hit the subscribe button to be notified. And if you want to stay connected in between episodes, join my community on Instagram and TikTok at Nourish underscore podcast. All right, that's all I got for you today. See you next time.